0: are we on this cool, cloudy spring day? <laughs> nice to have a bit of rain this week, although I was really disappointed we didn't get a proper thunderstorm. I do love a good storm. I even had my blinds in my office open so that I could watch it, and it didn't come. So I was very disappointed, but we did get a little bit of rain, which was nice. Now, i um, I'm going to put three pictures on the screen, and when you look at the pictures, I want you to tell me what they have in common. Anybody Who's, Who said it. It's olive oil. Um, I asked my eldest daughter and she was like, nothing, is that right? And I said, yes. (laughs) No, you've got there, that's an ancient olive oil press. They used to use it in the, um, you know, in the Bible days to crush the olives to extract the oil. And then anyone who watched Popeye would know that that's olive oil. Um, And then that's some kind of olive oil beautifying oil thing. So there are many, many different uses for olive oil. Um, Did anybody have a use that they use olive oil for? cooking yeah. squeaky doors good there I, I had a look and i wrote a bit of a list but there's many many different uses you can use it for your skin it's really good for your skin um uh, shining stainless steel dusting and polishing wooden furniture um gets rid of chewing gum in the hair um for cradle cap tanya if you get a bit of cradle cap put a bit of oil on and comb it through um, it's it's a very useful kind of in the bible oils have been around um, for thousands of years and uh, in the bible there's at least 33 specific oils that are mentioned Um, there's a lot talked about the aromatic oils used um, in in the bible including things like incense um, psalms 45 proverbs 27 isaiah 61 and hebrews 1 9 all reference oils in some way as in the oil of joy the oil of gladness and how oils rejoice the heart to the ancient Israelites there was no oil or fat with a more symbolic meaning than olive oil it grew readily in the Middle Eastern area it still does today it was used as an emollient a fuel for lamps for nutrition and many other purposes it was scented olive oil that was chosen to be a holy anointing oil for the Israelites This picture uh, of the lamp there, that's a typical oil lamp that would have been used around in the time of the Bible. They used to make a little pottery vessel of some kind. They'd get a bit of linen and put it in and use that as a wick. um, And then you'd put olive oil in it. And if you lit that in the evening, something like that would typically last about four or five hours. Anyone who knows the Bible quite well would know the story of the ten virgins who their lamps ran out of oil. So this is a typical thing as the sun went down, you'd light your oil. If you didn't have more oil, after about four or five hours, the the lamp would run out. So you can see that it was such an important part of their culture. In Exodus 27 verse 20, it says, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to keep the lamps burning continually. There's many references of anointing oil in the Bible as well, used biblically to break the yoke of slavery to sin. In Isaiah 10:27, it says, It shall come to pass that in the day his burden will be taken away from your shoulder, his yoke from your neck. The yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. In James 5, 14 and 15, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up. If he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. And in Psalms 105.15, it says, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Oil is really significant in the Bible. Perhaps the most well-known reference to oil that we know is in the Christmas story when the wise men bought frankincense and myrrh, there is an essential oil. Um, they brought it along with gold as a gift to give to baby Jesus. And that's found in Matthew, in Matthew 2. There's many other oils in the Bible. Um, there are just a few of them with some of their references. Um, frankincense that was given to Jesus, both frankincense and myrrh would have been worth more per weight than gold. That's how valuable... That oil was. Myrrh was used by Queen Esther in Esther. And there's many others, cinnamon, spike nard, the oil of nard that comes from the spike nard. So you know the story of, of um, when when Mary puts the oil over Jesus' feet, she breaks the nard, the oil of nard. Um, and that also was an extremely expensive oil. And then you have things like hyssop, cassia, cypress, galbanium, calamus. There's many different ones and each one has a significance in the Bible and if you do want to look it up it's, it's really quite interesting. Um, I kind of got caught up looking up all of that but my sermon today is about oil and in particular about the miracle found in Second Kings 4 about the widow and the oil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank you for being here with us today. I pray that you open our hearts and our ears to hear what you want me to speak and I pray that you use me as a vessel to speak what you want all of us to hear and understand from your word. We ask in your name. Amen. So I've titled my sermon today, God of Provision. It's really the story about the little jar of oil. In 2 Kings 4 verse 1 to 7 we read this story. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. You know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditors come to take my children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me what have you in your house. And she said, Your servant has nothing in my house except for a jar of oil. And he said, Go, inside, go outside, borrow vessels from your neighbours, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in, shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him. She shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there's not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and she told the man of God, And he said, go sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons will live on the rest. Many of us are familiar with or have heard of this story. And I want to look today at this story of the widow, this unnamed widow, and discover what is the Bible teaching us through these short seven verses. But to do that better, to put it in a bit of context, I want to backtrack a little bit so that we can understand the context of the story the context of the day. Now, 2 Kings chapter 4 actually records five of God's miracles through Elisha. So, the miracle of the oil and the widow, uh, which we just read. Then next, he prophesies to the Shunammite woman that she will have a baby. She was barren, couldn't have children. So, he prophesied that she would and she did. Um, And then next, we see that child has grown up and he dies. And Elisha raises that child from the dead. He then purifies some poisonous food so that people can eat it. And then he does a miracle multiplying the food to feed a hundred men. So it's quite an action-packed chapter of miracles for Elisha. Um, But in actual fact, the time frame covered in this chapter is many, many years. So who is Elisha? For those of you who are not very familiar with Elisha, I want to give you a little overview, a quick overview of who Elisha is. ...and the significance of this story in the times that it occurred in. So who is Elisha? The purpose of Elisha's ministry was to restore respect for God and his message... ...and he stood firmly against the evil kings of Israel. Elisha's mighty miracles revealed that God controls not only great armies... ...but also events in everyday life. By faith, with courage and prayer... Elisha revealed not only God's judgment on sin, but also his mercy, love and tenderness towards faithful people. When we listen and obey God, he shows us his power to transform any situation. God's care is for all who are willing to follow him. Elisha was a prophet who worked with Elijah, who was also a prophet. And I, for many years I always got the two names mixed up, Elisha, Elijah, who's who, uh, who knows what, and um, but Elijah, Elijah was ascended to heaven. And there's only two, two men, not including Jesus, who was ascended to heaven in the Bible. So it was Elijah and Enoch. Good, Jackie. Um, so they were ascended to heaven. And before Elijah went to heaven, um, in 2 Kings 2, he says to Elisha, who was working under him, Ask, what shall I do for you before I am taken from you? And Elisha replied... Please let there be a double portion of your anointing of your spirit on me. He asked for a double portion and we see that God granted that request and because of that double portion he knew that Elisha's motives were pure and he went on to do many good things for God. His main goal was not to be better than Elijah or to be more powerful But his goal was to accomplish more for God and that's why he asked for the double portion. (laughs) He was asking to be Elijah's successor in the prophetic ministry of the time to continue his work as the leader of the prophets. And as we read through 2 Kings, that whole book, we see God's favour come to pass with twice as many miracles recorded as being done through Elisha. Elisha had a tremendous influence in that time. In 2 Kings 2 and 3, we read that kings respected him. He was amongst the kings. Um, In 2 Kings 3, he meets the king of Israel, the king of Judah and the king of Edom. He was a powerful, well-respected man. He was in such a position of importance that in 2 Kings 5, when the commander of the Syrian army came to speak to him, he sent a messenger to answer. He was so powerful, he didn't have to go and meet with everybody. So why then in chapter 4 does he go and meet with a widow? In those days, widows were considered very poor, very outcast. But it shows what kind of a man Elisha was. He was a godly man and he took time to be with and speak to those who were considered insignificant. Through Elisha, God did many, many miracles and Elisha facilitated those miracles with the use of simple ...cheap, everyday items that even the poorest of the poor had. In Elisha's miracles you read he uses things like oil. He uses flour. He uses salt. He uses a musician, He uses a river. He uses things that are around that anybody can have access to. And I believe there's a lot of significance in the simplicity of the things that he uses... ...to teach and show us that God can use anything if it's in the hands of someone who believes. So Elisha succeeds Elijah as the leader of the prophets and in this passage today we meet the widow. So the widow's husband was considered one of the sons of the prophets. He served under Elisha and learnt the ways of God from him. Elisha knew him well. Now in those days widows were particularly disadvantaged. Disadvantaged without a male to care for the family, they would often be taken advantage of, many times become destitute and usually looked down upon. This story tells us that the woman had nothing except for that little bit of oil. She had two children. It'd be reasonable to assume that the children were very young because in those days they would work as soon as they were old enough. So the fact that the boys couldn't work means that they were young children And so the debtor had come to take away her children to be used as slaves to repay her debt. Her children was the only thing of value she had left in the world. They would be the ones to take care of her when they grew up. But until then she was struggling to survive. And so she sees Elisha and she cries out for help. I'm reminded of a promise here told in Exodus 22 that says, Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. And we read that in this story. He did hear her cry. There were many instructions in the laws of the Old Testament to provide for and take care of widows and orphans. In Deuteronomy 24, God commanded the people that when they harvested the the wheat to leave the dropped wheat for the widows and orphans to pick up. And when you beat the olive branches to get the olives off, leave some behind for the poor, the widows and the and the orphans to collect and use. And the most well known story we know of this is in Ruth, when when she goes to glean the edges of the field, God God put these provisions and laws in place in the time. In Psalm sixty five 8 verse 5, it says, God who lives in his holy palace is a father to orphans and takes care of widows. In 1 Timothy 5, it says, take care of any widow who has no one else to care for her. And in James 1.27, pure and genu- genuine religion in the sight of God means caring for widows and orphans in their distress. So as you can see again and again, God puts these provisions in place for those who are in need. So what can we learn from the story of the widow with the little jar of oil? The first thing we learn is that we need to make a desperate plea. She made a desperate plea. She had low status. She had a crippling debt. There was no other way. She was in a desperate situation. If she didn't pay, the debtors would come. It says in the scripture that they were already. the debtors are coming. They're already on their way to take her children. Her sons were her security for her future. So she cried out for help. And in this story, when the widow cries out for help, it's not just a, oh, you know, excuse me, do you have $5 just that I could pay my pay my bill or catch my bus? It was not just a, if you have a little bit to spend, no, no, that's okay, don't worry about it, that's all right. Um, it was a desperate plea. It was a plea that was full of emotion um, you think of when you're crying out for something with a cry of desperation, like if you stub your toe, do you generally just go, oh, that hurt a bit? No, generally your first response is this cry out. You go, oh, oh, you know, my, I've hit my toe. It's a cry that's full of emotion and passion. What about the reaction you see when a mother has lost a child? You see in, um, I've seen images of these times of war and these parents whose children are dead, the emotion behind their cry out. It's a desperate cry out. It's a passionate cry out. And in a similar way was this widow. Her only possessions on earth, her sons, were about to be taken away. And in those days it was acceptable that they could do that. Although God did give instructions to the wealthy people to not take advantage of these people. In Deuteronomy 15, um, the first portion of that chapter, it explains more about these practices. But it says, If anyone is poor among you, your fellow Israelites in the towns of the land of the Lord your God, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather be open-handed and freely lend them what they need. But what we see here is this woman's creditor was not acting in that way, not acting in the spirit of the laws of God. Elisha's kindness to widows demonstrate that God wants us to go beyond simply just keeping the law. This act by Elisha shows us a lesson we can all learn. We must also show compassion and take action to help others. The first point she made a desperate plea she had an urgent need and she was savvy enough to know who she needed to turn to in her hour of need god and at the time elisha was god's representative she turned to god's servant and emphasized her need she highlighted the relationship between her husband and elisha your servant my husband your servant feared the lord the creditor has come to take my children. She emphasized the need to Elisha and ultimately giving it to him to fix, giving it to God to fix. And what this shows us is that when we come to God, we don't need to bring anything. We bring nothing to God when we have a need for Him, except our need and our connection to Christ. I am your servant and I have a need. I need you to come through for me. And over and over in the Bible, he instructs us to look after those who are among us who have needs, the poor, the orphans, the foreigners, the widows. Isaiah 117 says, Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. It tells us in Psalm 146, That the Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and widows but frustrates the plans of the wicked. And Jeremiah 49 verse 11 says, I will protect the orphans who remain among you. Your widows too can depend on me for help. Don't think that because of your situation you cannot come to God. You can. He wants you to. He has made provisions to look after you. He just wants you to take that first step. Psalm 34.5 tells us if you look to him for help, he will put a smile on your face and you will have no need to be ashamed. The second thing we can learn from this scripture is that she participated in the miracle. We see in Elisha's response that he invites the woman into the miracle he's about to perform. Our God is a powerful God. She came with desperation. God could easily have paid off her debts. He could have easily sent her inside and had the exact amount that she owed sitting there ready to be paid off. He is an all-powerful God. He could have made the cash appear in her home. He could have made the debt be wiped clean. And there are times in the Bible where God does do these miracles, these unilateral miracles where he provides what is required and that's the end of it. But a lot of time we see these participatory miracles, miracles which require the person to get involved. And this is one of those times. When we look at verse 2, it says, And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she answered him, I have nothing except a jar of oil. Elisha asked her two questions. What should I do for you? And tell me what do you have? Why does he ask those questions? I believe it's because he wants her to be a part of what he's doing, a part of what is going to happen. And we see her desperation in the reply. I've got nothing but this jar of oil. It's almost like an afterthought. I could almost hear myself saying that with a hint of cynicism. I've got nothing. I've got a jar of oil. A jar of oil is worthless. I have nothing. She has sold everything to pay off her debts. She has nothing. She doesn't even have a vessel to collect water to drink with. When she says she has nothing, she means she has nothing, not a plate to eat from, not a table or chair or a piece of jewellery or an animal tied up, nothing, quite literally, nothing. Now, in the context of the time, they didn't have a supermarket. They couldn't stock up their cupboards with some dry biscuits that when they get hungry, they can use it. They couldn't buy things when they had money, store it away as much. She had a jar of oil. She had to cook each meal. She didn't even have the ingredients to cook their next meal. She didn't tell him, I have a potato and some oil. She said she didn't even have a frying pan. She said, I've got oil, I've got nothing. Sometimes we don't think that we have anything for God to multiply because we lack confidence in the gifts and resources that God has given us. We hesitate or we walk away from opportunities that seem too big for us. A lack of confidence is a form of doubt, and doubt is a lack of faith which blocks God from moving in our lives. We have to believe that if God brought it to us, he will help to see us through it. She had oil, but it was something. Think of your own life. Do you ever feel inadequate, totally ill-equipped to do what you need to do, unprepared for the week ahead, without even enough in your purse to plan the week's meals for your family. We just need the desire to do something for God. However small the thing we have, it is something that God can use. God can use that desire to help us make it through, despite the fact that we feel inadequate. In your finances, in your everyday life, with your bills, your provisions, your health, even the ability to parent your children well. When you say, oh God, I want to do it well, but I just don't know how I can. I have nothing. I want to provide nutritious meals for the week, but I've only got dry pasta in the cupboard. I desire to be a good parent, but I don't know if that's enough for my children. And God says, let's start with what we have. I know it's not enough. I'll take your something and I'll use it to do Everything. You see, in God's maths class, one plus one does not equal two. But one plus God equals everything. Yes. Think of your own situation. If you were in the widow's shoes, in her position now, and Elisha was to come and ask you, what do you have? What would your answer be? What do you have in your life of value? What gift do you have? Skill or talent? What small thing or desire do you have that God can use? What could it be that God could use in your life? And would you be willing to trust him with it in your hour of desperation? The third thing we learn is that faith doesn't have to make sense. Elisha said to her, go and borrow vessels from your neighbours, empty vessels, not too few, then go in and shut the door behind yourself and then pour that little jar of oil into all of these vessels. And when one is full, put it aside and keep going. Elisha encouraged the widow to borrow vessels. He didn't limit it. He didn't say go and get 10 vessels. He didn't limit the number. He just told her not too few. I wonder how did the widow receive these instructions to pour oil from a tiny vessel into a big vessel, and many of them. Elisha had listened. He knew she had nothing. In those times, in ancient times, families would have vessels in the house to use for different things, for storing things, for collecting water. Most likely the vessels would have been made of clay. Those who were wealthy may have had ones made of gold or silver, but for ordinary families and people, it would have just been a clay vessel. More than likely, when a couple got married, they would be gifted these vessels by family and friends as a a wedding gift to set up their home. The very fact that she only had a jar of oil means that she probably had sold everything in her home. So here we see her being told by Elisha to go... To your neighbours, borrow vessels and plenty of them. How would you have reacted if God told you, go to your neighbours and borrow a Tupperware container so that we can multiply something? The act required action. It required her to go and ask her neighbours. This means that her neighbors would have known that she was so poor she didn't even have a vessel. But she did. She swallowed her pride. She collected as many vessels as she could from her neighbours, as instructed. She didn't depend on her own supply. She sought her neighbours and friends' resources and they invested into her as well. When we think of these instructions given to the widow, we're so tempted to sometimes be independent. We want to throw away the instructions because we know how to do it. Some of us are worse than others. <coughs> men with instructions but God is it's in with God it's important to follow his instructions clearly and the instructions given seemed really crazy how would you feel standing in a room surrounded by dozens of empty vessels a small jar of oil you'd feel ridiculous you would wonder does this make sense what am I even doing This is the thing about faith, it doesn't make sense and that's why it's faith. Hebrews 11 tells us faith is the insurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The instructions were simple and she followed them. It was a miracle that they all participated in, herself and her sons, the whole family. As she poured, they brought the vessels to her. We know that God can do miracles for us. He is all-powerful and able. But I believe what this is showing us in this story is that by participating in the miracle, it means that you won't forget it. The boys will grow up and always remember that time that mum stood in the house and tipped the oil and God kept the oil keep going and we were able to stay living with mum and we were able to survive. the way their mum cried out in desperation, how they all got involved, they will never forget that moment. They will never forget her obedience and willingness to obey God's instructions. Don't be afraid to ask for help. You can't do it all and you can't do it alone. You need connection with your neighbours and the people around you. But, we all love a good but, You can't do it alone, but there are times that God needs you alone to slow the distractions and show you how he works. You see, this woman trusted God's words that came through Elisha. In those days, prophets were extremely important to life amongst the Israelites because they represented God. And as crazy as the instructions seemed, she knew that if God said it, it would work out. God said it, she believed it. God's instructions don't always make sense. How do five loaves and two fish feed 5,000 people with leftovers? It doesn't make sense. The challenge is to trust God, to have enough faith to trust that something that seems crazy to you is God working his power. Faith is an interactive process between you and God. He's willing to play what is in your hand no matter how small. Pray about it, but don't just pray about it. Don't stop there. Get up and follow the instructions that he gives you because God will honour your faith. The fourth point we learn from this story is to close the door. He told her how to do it go in your house, shut the door, and pour. When one is full, set it aside. The instructions were clear. It was not a magic show for the entire neighbourhood. It was not a show for everyone to marvel at and see. It would have been a great opportunity to show others how mighty God is, how powerful he is. But she was instructed to go inside to a quiet private place and pour the oil. Even this was specific. Pour into one jar until it's full, set it aside and keep going. She went from him, she shut the door behind herself and there with her son she poured. She didn't fight with the man of God when he told her to take the oil and ask her neighbours to borrow vessels. She did what he told her to do and this is so important. Like any good advice, it's only good if you can apply it to your life. God cannot do a work in our lives if we are not sensitive to his voice and obedient to his guidance. She had a role to play in this and God asked her to do it his way. She went from him, from the prophet Elisha. And God is showing us here that he works even when the prophet was not present. So often we want this big thing, this big moment. We think that we can only receive from God if someone comes to tell us that it's true or to speak it over us or if Ben says so, it must be true. But it's not true like that. God is showing us he works in the quiet place. He works in our homes when no one is watching, in our heart. It's when we come to him and seek him. And Ben talked about this last week about withdrawing to a quiet place to seek God and to pray to God and to see him move in our lives. Even Jesus did that himself. We read about it in Luke 16, that Jesus often went away to other places to be alone so that he could pray, away from the noise. In our culture today, in our world today, everything we do is seen. Everything is observed, critiqued, reported on, photographed, videoed. Posted on social media. You think of this situation in the Middle East today. It's being reported as the first war that's ever been live streamed. More than ever before, we need to seek the quiet place. Close the door, block out the distractions. Follow the instructions and the commands that God has given you. Because when you position yourself in the quiet place, you will begin to see him move in ways that you could never imagine. In Matthew 6.6, Jesus himself talks about seeking the quiet place when we pray. In the message version it says, Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet and secluded place so that you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can. The focus will shift from you to God and you will begin to sense his grace. In this verse, Jesus is drawing attention to the motives behind people's actions. The focus should be on addressing God, not how you appear before others. Shifting the focus to God, allowing yourself to obey him and obey the instructions he's given. And this really shows us how amazing God is. He doesn't need the internet or social media to gather a crowd. He came as a bright light into the darkness of the world. But it also reminds us that God doesn't want to be on display all the time. This was a great opportunity to show everyone God's greatness, but he asked her to close the door. There are some experiences that he wants to be just between you and him. When God works a miracle behind closed doors, it's a way of building spiritual intimacy with you. And the world doesn't need to know every detail of your relationship with God. Jesus performed many miracles in public, but there were times that he didn't. There were times that Jesus told the recipients of the miracles to go and not tell anyone. The Bible lists so many of Jesus' miracles, but we're also told that there's many miracles not even listed. Do we doubt that they happened? No, because he's God. But it just shows us he doesn't need to, to write them all down to have us believe. We need to have faith. John says in John 21, if each of Jesus' miracles were to be written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. We don't even know them all but we don't need to know them to believe. You see, some blessings are in private. It is God's business to work in private. And as you experience his power, you need to check in with God first before you make decisions about what you're going to share publicly. Many things are between you and God. Make sure you listen and are obedient to him about what he wants done in public and what he wants and why, if it's just between you and God. The final thing to learn from the story of the widow and the oil is not to estimate, underestimate God. When the vessels were full, he said, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said, there is not another one. And then the oil stopped flowing. She came, she told the man of God and he said, sell the oil, pay your debts and you and your sons can live on the rest. At any point from when the widow started filling up the jars to when she finished, she could have stopped. She could have refused to obey the instructions, but I don't want to gather too many from my neighbours. It's embarrassing asking them for simple vessels. They'll know that I'm struggling. Lord, just give me the money I need rather than making me do all these things, but she didn't. She obeyed, she closed the door and together with her son, she poured the oil as instructed. Pour into all the vessels. When one is full, set it aside. And then the vessels are full and the oil stops flowing. It ends. The oil stops. You see, the limit was not the power of God, but the number of vessels that the woman was able to or limited to get. When you come and ask God for a miracle, do you limit Him? Do you underestimate Him? The woman collected many vessels and filled them, trusting God that the oil did not run out. She didn't stop in the middle. She didn't fill five and say, well, that's actually all I need to pay my debt off. I might just leave it at this and go and take these ones. She filled them all until there was no more to fill. And when she told Elijah, again he instructed her, go and sell the oils and live on the rest. You see, she didn't underestimate God. We see here the superabundant provision of God. Sell the oil, pay your debts. But he doesn't stop there. He said live on the rest. The important thing is that faith and finances do go together. Elisha instructed her to sell the oil. The olive oil was a way of earning money. And she allowed God to multiply the little that she had until it grew into a considerable amount that she could generate an income. You see, in this story, God solved more than one problem. He didn't just solve her crisis, he met her ongoing need. If God gave her just the money for the debt or enough oil to repay the debt, what would have happened then? Would it have happened again? Likely, she would have gone into debt again. She still had no way of making money. Her children were still not old enough to work. God's provision is abundant. God's provision fixes the crisis. God's provision goes beyond what is asked. Philippians 4.19 tells us that my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory. This verse is a promise that God will not forsake those who seek him. Even when the boy with the loaves and the fish came to offer this up for Jesus to use... The disciples were cynical. They said, what's that for so many people? Even they underestimated God's power. But in Mark 9.23, Jesus tells the father of a child that he healed, all things are possible to those who believe. In Matthew 7.7, it says, Ask and you'll be given to you. Seek and you will find knock and the door be opened. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give a good gift to your child, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Don't assume that because you've been praying and asking for your miracle for five years or ten years, that you've figured out that God can or cannot answer it. Until the day comes, keep praying, keep seeking, keep the faith, continue to trust in God. So, when you find yourself in a desperate situation, think of this little jar of oil. Think of the five things that we can learn. Make a desperate plea. Participate in the miracle. Remember, it doesn't have to make sense. Remember the importance of closing the door. And remember to not underestimate God. Our God is a God of everyone. He will provide if we come to Him and we ask. If we cry out with desperation in our time of need, His provision goes beyond what we ask. So don't worry about these things saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly father already knows those needs. Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for God feeds them. And we are more valuable to God than the birds. One of my favourite verses is that in Psalms 3410, and anyone who's listened to Colin Buchanan knows this verse by song, But it says, the lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack nothing. Give all of your worries and cares to God because he cares about you. Our God is a provider who provides over and abundantly more than we could hope for, beyond what we ask. In contrast to the thief who comes to steal and take, to the creditors who will take their children from their own mother, Jesus gives life. Jesus himself said, the thief comes to steal, king, kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and life abundantly. The life he gives us is abundantly rich and satisfying. It's eternal. Life in Christ is more deeply meaningful than life without him because of his overflowing forgiveness, love and guidance. We just have to come to him. Cry out in our desperation. Desperation. Let him not only fix our crisis, but solve the bigger problem of our need. I want to encourage you today, no matter what your problem is, no matter how big the crisis is, cry out to God and he will meet your need. He will be your God of provision. Whatever you have, offer it to him and have faith because he's not just here to solve your crisis. He's here to provide for your need.